so I've heard that they're nature's deadliest killer. Is that right? It's hard to define that type of statistic and how it really, really all depends on how you classify it. But it's true that malaria, for example, has killed probably by some estimates half of all humans that have ever lived. So in that sense, you could say, you know, mosquitoes by being transmitters of diseases like malaria have led to the death of a vast number of humans. That's Dr. Amish Adalja, an infectious disease expert. With the discovery of locally transmitted cases of Zika virus in the United States, I called him up to ask him about mosquitoes. Mosquitoes carry a, a wide variety of diseases. Today on Rise and Fall, mosquitoes. Including things that are very famous or infamous, like malaria, which is probably the most prominent of the infectious diseases that they carry. We've been battling them and the diseases they carry for a really long time. To things like dengue fever, chikungunya, Zika virus, which is in the headlines. We've used tools like vaccines, insecticides, physical barriers. A West Nile virus, which uh, basically took uh, the United States by storm in the late 1990s. And now new to the fight, genetically engineered mosquitoes, designed to make it very hard for wild mosquitoes to propagate themselves. And there are other diseases that are not necessarily well known, but, but have historical significance. For example, yellow fever, which used to occupy a lot of the United States, was a, uh, a disease that was spread by mosquitoes. We've had a lot of success in the battle against mosquitoes. There are other diseases like something called filariasis, or what is commonly known as this elephantiasis, where people can get enormous swellings of their of their uh, extremities, their legs. For example, if you look up pictures of uh, people in, develop- in the developing world, you'll see this is very common there. That's spread by uh, mosquitoes. But I think we could be a lot further along. Japanese encephalitis, which is important in parts of Asia. I think that there are ideas that stop us from using these tools, these technologies, even when we have Even in other parts of the United States, things like St. Louis encephalitis, Western equine encephalitis, Eastern equine encephalitis. That's what I want to focus on today. There are a whole host of viruses, bacteria, parasites that are transmitted by mosquitoes. It's almost impossible to list them all without uh, leaving something off. This time, I want to focus on the tools that we've been using to fight mosquito-borne disease and some of the reasons we don't use those tools, even when we have them. We'll hear more from infectious disease expert Amish Adalja, as well as Ayn Rand Institute Distinguished Fellow Peter Schwartz and Richard Tren. He's head of the organization Africa Fighting Malaria. But we have to start our story with dichloral, diphenyl, trichloroethane, or DDT. DDT is an insecticide that saved millions from disease. It was instrumental in eradicating malaria from the United States, but it was banned from use here in 1972, and other countries were soon to follow it. It wasn't banned because it was dangerous to humans, or even because the risk outweighed the benefit of using it to control mosquitoes. Instead, it was banned because of the ideas people held. Okay, DDT. Here's Richard Tren. Again, he's founder of the organization Africa Fighting Malaria. This is from an interview I did with him in 2013. He explains how he became an advocate for a chemical that was on its way out of use. I'm South African, and I had been out of South Africa for a while and moved back there in the late 1990s at a time when a UN convention called the Stockholm Convention was being negotiated. I didn't really know very much about insecticides, but 
I'd heard about DDT. Uh, I had what I what I knew about it was that it was a dangerous insecticide, and it was probably a good thing it had been banned. At the time South Africa was in the grip of a major malaria epidemic that arose primarily because the country stopped using DDT in its malaria control program and changed to a different insecticide, to which resistance from the mosquitoes grew very quickly. So I visited the rural areas and the clinics, and it was just startling to to see people dying of malaria in South Africa, the most advanced African country. And yet there they were, people sharing beds, lying on the floor. It was a really terrible epidemic. South African government brought back DDT, and within a few months, the epidemic had stopped, and malaria cases came down 80%. But the UN convention, the Stockholm Convention, was determined to ban the use of DDT entirely for all countries for disease control. And so that experience led me with my colleagues to set up this organization to to have some sort of vehicle to advocate on behalf of those people in rural areas that, that can't advocate for DDT, uh, that aren't in a position to fight this UN and, and the rich countries and the very well-funded environmentalist groups. 500,000 to 1 million people die from malaria each year, mostly children under five years of age. 90% of those cases occur in sub-Saharan Africa. An estimated 300 to 600 million people suffer from malaria each year. More than 40% of the world's population lives in malaria risk areas. A child dies every minute from malaria. It's hard to wrap one's head around the monstrous suffering that malaria causes. In the 1990s, environmentalist groups and other organizations, like the UN, as Trent mentions, were putting increasing pressure on the non-capitalist world to stop using DDT even as a tool to fight malaria. And in doing so, they were blotting out the tremendous good this chemical, 28 atoms of hydrogen, carbon, and chlorine, had done for the world. What was missing from the discussion was DDT's tremendous good impact on human life. I wanted a philosophical perspective on DDT, so I called Ayn Rand Institute Distinguished Fellow and political commentator Peter Schwartz, and I asked him, what did DDT do for the world? Well, this was an insecticide that began to be widely used in the late 40s and early 1950s, and you could look at it as a miracle drug. It eliminated the scourge of malaria from much of the world at a time when malaria was a deadly prevalent disease. For example, India was particularly afflicted with it. And in the early 1950s, they had over 70 million cases of malaria annually. And once they started using DDT, by the early 1960s, the incidence fell to about 50,000 cases from over 70 million. In Sri Lanka, they had almost 3 million cases a year of malaria in the late 1940s. And... In the mid-60s, after using DDT, the number dropped to practically zero. So this was a disease that was killing millions of people a year, and where DDT was put into use, the disease was, was, was drastically reduced, if not eliminated. Here's more from my conversation with Amish Adalja. I also asked him about DDT and what it did for the world. Well, DDT was used in all over the world, and basically he was responsible for driving malaria numbers down almost 
to you know as low as possible. There actually was a, a World Health Organization eradication program for malaria that was in play in the 1960s, and DDT was a major component of it because it was long-lasting. It worked so well, it worked well, and was so toxic to mosquitoes that it was one of the preferred pesticides that was used for a time. But so why don't we use it anymore? Well, what happened was back around the almost like the dawning of the environmental movement, there was a a very famous book written by someone named Rachel Carson, who is from my hometown in Pittsburgh, where we have a Rachel Carson Bridge. She wrote a book called Silent Spring, and in that the title refers to the fact that pesticides like DET were accumulating in the food chain and may eventually were leading to uh, weakening of eggshells of birds. And maybe if we continue to use pesticides, that we would have a silent spring with no more birds chirping. Rachel Carson herself never called for the ban of DDT. It gave a lot of people the intellectual ammunition and put kind of morality on the side of the people who wanted to, to ban DDT. So the, the United States stopped funding DDT programs, and things started – they didn't go away completely, and we still use DDT in certain places. But what it did is cause it to be used haphazardly. It also allowed areas, pockets of DDT resistance to develop because of the way it was being used, and, and basically the whole malaria eradication campaign disappeared. Long, it was after the United States and a lot of the developed countries were able to get rid of malaria, but most of the developing world basically saw a, a big resurgence of malaria after the malaria eradication campaign basically collapsed. And DDT is part of that story. But it's also important, you know, now you see a lot of people trying to talk about bringing back DDT. It's important to remember DDT is not a panacea, that we do have DDT resistance mosquitoes all over the world, and you can't just Think of you have to think of a much more nuance of where you can use DDT when you can't use DDT. But you know, at the at the broad level, the fact that we stopped using DDT for political reasons really wasn't a, wasn't a good thing, and it's made, and it kind of it set back the way we control mosquitoes. And I think the important principle to keep in mind is that you have to use if you're using human life as a standard, not a bird's life, then DDT is unmitigatingly a good thing. This is where we need to take a brief step to the side and talk about DDT in humans. Here's the evidence. DDT saved millions of lives, living, breathing human beings from the scourge of disease. Yet DDT's reputation is that it's a bad or dangerous chemical. Everybody seems to know that DDT is dangerous, that it causes cancer or other ill health effects. It is important to be clear that these claims are simply not true. Here's Richard Trent in response to me asking him if DDT is a dangerous chemical. DDT is actually, although it has a, a bad name and it's just been the sort of totemic villain of so many environmentalist groups, it's actually a remarkably benign chemical. I've actually tasted it. Hmm. Um, there's a famous entomologist, uh, Jay Gordon Edwards, who used to eat a spoonful of it at every lecture that he gave on the topic. And he, he died in his, in his late 80s while hiking in the Rockies. So hardly a, a picture of ill health. D DDT is probably one of the most studied chemicals or synthetic man-made chemicals that we have since the 1940s. I mean, thousands upon thousands of studies have been conducted into DDT, looking at potential harm caused by DDT to human health. In all those years, in the, in the six decades or more, and in the thousands of studies, not a single study is able to comply with the most basic epidemiologic criteria required to prove a cause and effect relationship. 
what's amazing is that people seem to think that the mere fact that there have been so many studies out there proves something, proves that it must be harmful. Hmm. Well, in fact, all it proves is that there are millions of dollars from foundations and largely from the U.S. government and others that's available for people to study it. While it is true that scientific issues are always open to new evidence, the question of whether or not DDT is harmful to humans is one that I consider answered. All of the other claims that the evidence isn't in because we're still doing studies, that DDT won't save everyone, that we shouldn't use it because it isn't as effective as it once was, in reality, all they're doing is preventing us from saving lives. There's no other way to say it. Those who promulgate unsubstantiated fears above the positive effects DDT has in preventing disease are responsible for every death that could have been prevented by DDT's use. I want to tell you the story of just one of those lives. DDT was invented before World War II and was used by the Allies to combat diseases that have affected armies and civilians for centuries. One of those diseases is typhus, carried by lice that feed on humans, spread efficiently when humans are living in close quarters in poor hygiene. When British soldiers liberated Nazi concentration camp Bergen-Belsen in April of 1945, almost all of the survivors were infected with typhus-carrying lice. Typhus was what killed Anne Frank and her sister Margot just weeks before they would have been liberated from Bergen-Belsen. There is evidence that the Nazis allowed the lice to spread through the camp, using the brutality of nature as an excuse to say that their prisoners had died from natural causes. They offered occasional entlausungs, or delousings, which amounted to heating clothing in an effort to kill the insects. These were mostly ineffectual. When British soldiers arrived at the camp, they prioritized delousing. They gave liberated prisoners hot showers and dusted everything beds, clothing, personal effects, with DDT. This meant that within two weeks, there wasn't a single new case of typhus reported among the liberated prisoners. Former Bergen-Belsen prisoner Adolf Gowalowicz wrote this about his liberation. After two, three days at the hospital, we have our first encounter with the pesticide DDT. When the English soldiers enter the hospital room with sprayers filled with this product, we all look at them with contemptuous superiority. They're planning on using this puny white powder to destroy all these millions of lice, but hundreds of the most radically conducted entlausungs hadn't helped. Yet right in front of our eyes, something close to a miracle starts to happen. Slowly, the incessant itching, so painful on our pus-infected, ulcerated skin, starts to vanish. And this great relief finally convinces us that we really have been liberated. It is these stories that have been replaced in people's minds, replaced with the false facts that DDT is dangerous and not all that useful. That's part of the reason why DDT was banned. Here's more from my discussion with Peter Schwartz. This came with really the rise of the uh, ideology of environmentalism. There was a big push to ban DDT, largely prompted by the publication of a book by Rachel Carson called Silent Spring, which was a, an attack on the use of DDT and cited claims about the harmfulness of DDT and the, the way that it inf- affects wildlife and the way that it supposedly affects human beings. As a result, largely of that book, but a, more, more broadly of the whole environmentalist movement, DDT 
was banned in the United States, was gradually banned in, in the dozens of other countries as well. And even today, it, it still is in use, but DDT is basically anathema. It's regarded as something that, um, you know, more enlightened people do not use. It's tarred as a, a deadly product. The whole international community is organized against it, either to ban it or to make it as difficult as possible to use. It's an ideological motivation that led to banning DDT because the claims, the scientific claims about DDT were not based on science. They were based on an ideology that regards technology and industrialization as intrinsically bad. There's scientifically, there's no evidence of any significant harm to human beings. And on the other hand, you have this mass of evidence, irrefutable evidence showing the effectiveness of DDT, showing the millions of lives that have been saved because of DDT and the millions more that have been lost because DDT was uh, prohibited. This the environmentalists ignore, and they ignore it in part by coming up with these dubious claims that are allegedly based on science, but if you look into them, really have no basis. So, I mean, I'm curious as how someone, how is someone who calls himself an environmentalist then would, be, would deal with malaria, like that it's killing people, that it's uh, a disease that's really bad for for people. I mean, I, I have, you mentioned the book Silent Spring. I have it here on my desk and I looked up, you know, the number of mentions of malaria in the book. It's like she mentions it maybe two times. There are very, a few of them, a, a few of the most ardent and, and uh, outspoken environmentalists will make their views explicit and they will say they value nature and the wilderness above uh, human life. That's really at the core of the environmentalist view, but very few people are willing to follow that. Even, even people who regard themselves as environmentalists will not openly endorse that kind of view. Instead, grab onto any kind of claim, any kind of rationalization for keeping some tech, some new technology out of use. DDT has been banned for over 40 years, and very few hold out hope that it will ever be used, even in those situations where it will still have some efficacy in fighting diseases like malaria. That's tragic. But today, there's a new technology that is being used to fight mosquitoes and the diseases they carry. It's a technology that scientists like, and it could save lives. Genetically engineered mosquitoes. That's next. Here's more from my conversation with Amish Adalja. So genetically modified mosquitoes 
just to define it, these are sterile males that a company called Oxitec developed. And what they do is they're released into the wild, they, meet, they mate with females, and the offspring is non-viable uh, because of a, gen a genetic change they put in these sterile males. And they don't propagate the ones that we're talking about. It's just because they, they're sterile males, so you, can't, you don't get any propagation of this gene in the species. They basically end that generation. And they have been trialed in places like the Cayman Islands and Brazil, Malaysia, Panama, with pretty good results in, in pilot studies. This genetically modified mosquito is effective against what's called the Aedes aegypti mosquito, which is the one responsible for Zika, for yellow fever, for dengue, and for chikungunya. So it is one of the top mosquitoes that, you know, on my top 10 wanted list of mosquitoes. So to speak to what is the risk of Zika? What's the, I mean, what's going on in the United States and what's the problem? So Zika is a virus that's been along for, around for a long, long time, discovered in the 1940s. and basically was a, a travel medicine oddity until the last several years when we started to see bigger outbreaks. So what happened was we, we started to have a large outbreak in, in Brazil, and that, that coincided with the discovery at the same time of a lot of babies being born with abnormally small heads, a condition called microcephaly. And at that point, it was an association, because we had never seen anything like this with Zika. And what we knew about Zika, which is still true, is that the vast majority of people who have Zika have no symptoms at all, or if they do have symptoms, have a week-long episode of fever, chills, muscle aches and pains, maybe a red eye, maybe a rash, and they get better. But we had started seeing these, these issues with birth defects, and Brazilian researchers started really working to try to untangle whether or not Zika was responsible. And over time, there was a lot of converging evidence that basically proved that Zika can infect a pregnant woman, pass to her, pass to the developing fetus, and cause devastating fetal harm. The mosquitoes that spread Zika are present all over the world, but there are parts of the United States, particularly in the southern parts of the United States, where you have these mosquitoes proliferating. Places like Florida, places like Texas, places like Hawaii, and that's really gotten the U.S. interested in trying to control Zika before it, it spreads here and. They don't expect it to spread very rapidly or far in the United States, but we do have to expect localized outbreaks like we're seeing right now in Miami uh, to occur because all it takes is an infected traveler from one of those areas. Uh, and some of those areas are Puerto Rico and U.S. Virgin Islands where people travel regularly to be bitten by the right mosquito and you spark a local outbreak. These mosquitoes are what's known to the general public as GMOs. GMO stands for Genetically Modified Organism. What's a GMO? Well, using their understanding of genes and DNA and the techniques of modern biotechnology, scientists are able to insert genes within an organism's genome to improve it on the genetic level. There have been a number of breakthrough inventions using this technology, especially in the field of agriculture, where plants such as corn that's engineered to repel insects or soybeans engineered to make it easy for farmers to deal with weeds blanket American fields. But as these technologically enhanced plants have been revolutionizing agriculture, a movement has arisen to try to put a stop to using them. The anti-GMO movement, as they're called, which is a movement broadly categorized under environmentalism. They're opposed to using the technology of genetic engineering. The genetically engineered mosquitoes, which were created using this new technology, are opposed by anti-GMO activists everywhere that they are proposed to be released. They fearmonger. They say that the mosquitoes could cause an environmental catastrophe or harm humans. Adalja was involved in a study that asked how the general public, not activists, but how the general public felt about the mosquitoes. 
you've studied the genetically engineered mosquitoes, at least how people react to them. So tell me more about that. What happened in Key West, Florida, over the last several years is we've seen outbreaks of dengue fever. And we got interested in it, my, my uh, colleagues and I, wondering about, you know, how the population there in the Key West area would react to genetically modified mosquitoes because there isn't really a big anti-GMO movement in Panama or the Cayman Islands because there they're faced with people dying from dengue every day. So you know, the risk-benefit ratio falls so far on the benefit side that there's not much traction that the anti-GMO forces can get. So we were curious to see what would happen if you tried to do this in a place like Key West, Florida. So we surveyed uh, individuals in that area uh, there's a, a neighborhood where they were slated for relief, and we basically found that there was a strong opposition to the use of genetically modified mosquitoes amongst the population. And then we did more sophisticated analysis trying to predict whether or not people would be, what would predict their support or opposition to these mosquitoes. And interestingly, we found if you knew somebody that had dengue or chikungunya, you were much more likely to support GMO mosquitoes. So it's interesting because I do think that that offers kind of a silver lining here that for someone who thinks that GMO mosquitoes are a part of the solution like I do, the fact that we're seeing all this media uh, attention to Zika, the fact that we have local transmission of Zika by mosquitoes in Florida may mean that, that that's a little bit more pliable and that people will now, because they're becoming more aware of the dangers of Zika, be more receptive. What Adalja is saying is that when people see the problem that these mosquitoes were invented to solve, when they see diseases like dengue or chikungunya firsthand, they seem to be more accepting of the technology. So I wanted to ask Peter Schwartz about this, specifically why some of the claims made by anti-GMO activists or other environmentalist groups sound plausible to people in the first place and what these activists think about the mosquitoes. Here's from our conversation. So I am interested to hear more about the environmentalist ideology, because like you said, DDT, it's a really great chemical, and there's, it seems like there's nothing else, uh, other, any other pesticide that's quite like it. But you, like you said, there's other methods for you know, getting rid of mosquitoes. And now we have a new method, right? So there's these genetically engineered mosquitoes. And so environmentalists, okay, so they didn't want DDT. Now we have the mosquitoes. What do they think of those? Aren't they rejoicing about those? The environmentalists largely have the same reaction to it, to actually have the uh, audacity for man to go in and change the genetic structure of something in nature, of a mosquito, strictly for the purpose of helping human beings is regarded as something very undesirable by environmentalists. Their, their view is, as much as possible, man should be kept from interfering with nature. Man should not encroach upon nature. We should learn to live with nature and respect it rather than keep trying to uh, reshape it to satisfy our needs. So they're opposed to this new, relatively new development, this new method of genetically altering the genetic structure of the mosquito so that their offspring die before reaching adulthood and they don't reproduce. They're, they're opposed to that as well. The FDA, fortunately, recently FDA approved this, but the company that has developed this wants to try it out in Florida, which is in the United States, the right now, the most troubling area of the threat of Zika virus. 
and uh, the environmentalists are very much opposed to it, so they may not be able to try it at all. People believe all sorts of things about them. Like they're they're afraid that that something's going really terrible is going to happen if if we use this tool in order to um, to fight insect borne diseases that the mosquitoes will somehow escape and cause some sort of environmental catastrophe. Um, and like you said, there are a lot of studies that uh, purport to show that DDT is going to cause cancer, and people find that plausible. Well, it does sound plausible. You can't blame normal people for accepting this. You don't have to. Not everybody is a, a scientist or is interested or, or should devote the effort to examining each one of these claims that comes out of the mouth the mouth of an environmentalist. So they, they take it, well, you know, the New York Times said this study showed there's some cancer, there must be something to it, and they hear it over and over again. So you can't blame them. It's the promulgators of these distortions who are to blame. It's the people who have a hostility toward technology and industrialization and toward the man-made, and then they come up with these studies showing alleged harm based on arbitrary uh, assertions. What pushes this whole uh, trend, this whole environmentalist approach, is the ideas underlying that, that there is something wrong, there is something suspect about man interfering with nature, and that we would all be better off if we lived, quote, in harmony with nature, when in fact... That's the recipe for, for dying. The life of a human being, human health and prosperity, depends upon taking nature, which is inimical to life if left alone, to human life. It's taking nature and reshaping it and changing it. And, and if you look around, every machine that you use, every building that you live or work in, all of this was once wilderness. How did it get? How did we get from wilderness to roads and cities and computers and smartphones? We got to that because we took the material of nature and said, "Let's change it. Let's make it different. Let's get out of the jungle. Let's get out of the swamps. Let's get out of the cave, and let's create a world." in which nature is reshaped to serve human needs. That's the way human life advances. That's what human life depends on, and the environmentalists have a very different philosophy. If we take this idea seriously about reshaping nature for human needs, what does that mean for the mosquito? Would it be moral for us to eradicate mosquitoes from the planet entirely? I definitely think it would be moral, and I almost think it becomes feasible with science. It almost becomes a, a moral imperative because you, you have to look at, you know, what your standard of value is. And if your standard of value is human life, you know, mosquitoes fall by, by the wayside. And we have, for example, you know, so there's maybe some controversy whether you think of smallpox as a life form because it's a virus, but we eradicated smallpox from the planet. We're about to eradicate polio from the planet. We're about to eradicate guinea worm, which is actually a worm that causes disease from the planet. There's no controversy um, about, about really eradicating pestilential type of organisms. And I think that 
mosquitoes should be characterized as that. And, and, and I want to just, you know, caveat that. It doesn't mean that every mosquito on the planet, you have to remember mosquitoes, we talk about mosquitoes like they're this big, you know, superorganisms. There's many different genuses and species of mosquitoes. And I do think it's appropriate to, to go after some of these mosquitoes, particularly ones that spread malaria and and uh, Zika, Dengue, Chikungunya, those mosquitoes, because they're the ones that really contribute to the burden of of infectious diseases. There definitely are some species of mosquitoes that I think the, the human race would be much better off without. Would it be moral to eradicate mosquitoes? Why would it, why would it not be? <laughs> well, I mean, I think the the argument would be: Look, you're that's it's a species that's on the earth. It has a maybe it deserves to live or it has a right to be here just as much as we do, and we shouldn't. Uh, you know, upset that balance. There are a lot of arguments I can imagine. Well, there aren't a lot. I mean, the, the claim always comes down to that. It comes down to the idea that nature has some intrinsic value, that animals and plants and even rivers have a right to exist as they are in nature, and human beings have no right to change them. That is what lies at the root of it. And all of the rest of this, all of these, you know, pseudoscientific studies and showing the harm that comes about, they're all just window dressing. And as I say, if you look at most of them, you'll find there's really nothing legitimate underlying them. They're all window dressing in order to disguise and make more palatable the view that nature has to be protected from man. And, and that's the view that needs to be contested if people want to start reversing this trend and, and being able to use new inventions and new technology to change nature to, to benefit mankind. We have uh, DDT, we have these genetically engineered mosquitoes. You've mentioned other things too, uh, you know, that might be important, like screens on your window, bed nets, all sorts of things. And so I'm trying to make the point is not that we don't have effective tools and we could use more tools, that would be great as well, but that there's something else that's stopping us from uh, eradicating disease, something else that's making us, you know, resign, that we're resigning ourselves to, uh, to just having to deal with the Zika virus or the next virus that comes uh, around. Yes, yes, and you have to go further, and, and it's not just that we have some tools, because some of these things the environmentalists would be happy with, for the moment anyway. The less advanced, the less technological, the less interference with nature it involves, the more receptive they are, you know, so they're, that's why they're happy to have windmills, but not oil refineries to produce power. You need to ask, what is your standard of the good? Now, a proper rational standard is, the good is whatever advances the health and well-being of human beings. And in order to do that, in order to advance human life, it is required that we alter nature, that we reshape nature for the purpose of becoming a tool to satisfy our needs. There's no intrinsic value in nature as such. The environmentalists, however, believe the opposite. Their view is that there is intrinsic value to nature, that there's, oh, there's something suspicious and something dubious about technology and industrialization and the man-made and the non-natural. To them, when there's a conflict between what is necessary to keep nature intact 
and what is required to further human life at the cost of uh, altering nature, they invariably choose the former. They invariably choose to protect nature. Their view is they want to protect nature not for man, but from man. Any claim, therefore, any opposition has to be based on objective science showing that there is some harm, but not harm to the mosquitoes and not harm to nature and not harm to the, eco, quote, ecosystem, but harm to actual human beings and that the harm involved outweighs the demonstrable benefit. That's what they have to show. In other words, you have to have the right standard when you're going to argue about what's the best means of opposing some disease or whatever. And they have the wrong standard, and that's what has to be challenged. Back to my conversation with Richard Chen, he points out that the ideas animating the environmentalist movement, especially those aimed at pesticides, have had real consequences in what new technologies are even invented. Um, Unfortunately, because of, I think primarily because of anti-insecticide campaigns and because of the um, growing regulatory burdens to developing insecticides. Uh, we've seen hardly any investment in new insecticides for public health. There hasn't been a new class for around 30 years. Mm. Uh, and this is worrying. You know. So here's the, you know, the irony is that you know, Rachel Carson campaigned against the use of DDT, but her campaign led to dampening of research into, into new insecticides. And the result is that countries are still reliant on DDT, still reliant on the insecticide that she, that she campaigned against, precisely because of the campaigns that she launched. Hmm. Um, and that's, that's worrying. You know, the malaria control scientists don't use DDT because they are lazy or just can't be bothered to think of something new. They do it out of necessity, and they would love to have new, new insecticides and new choices, but we just don't have them. So what's needed to get rid of mosquito-borne disease for good? Civilization is the panacea. Mosquito-borne illnesses will go away with civilization. And when I say civilization, I mean I mean the air conditioning and the screen doors, but I also mean people, you know, area, no slums outside where there is sanding water collecting, where people are, you know, where people are living in, a, in, a, in a, an environment that's unsuitable for mosquitoes. And they, the more civilized it is, and that includes using insecticides and and using that type of stuff, but it's kind of the whole picture that's going to get rid of mosquitoes. It's not one thing that you can do. You know, genetically modified mosquitoes, we've only got them for one species of mosquitoes, and those are the mosquitoes that, that, that do Zika, Dengue, Yellow Fever, Chikungunya, but we don't have one uh, genetically modified mosquito solution yet to malaria, for example, because that's fed by a whole host of different mosquitoes. You have to have almost like an army of different genetically modified mosquitoes. We don't have the same thing for West Nile. So it's, it's I think that there's a lot of, sometimes there's a lot of oversimplification because people just think every mosquito is the same as every other mosquito and they're all different, they all have different habitats, they all do different things and, and you have to attack them in all different ways. So it's unlikely that you ever find a magic bullet, so it's going to have to be basically a civilizing process which gets rid of most infectious diseases, uh, not just ones that are spread by mosquitoes. Well, you know, we need, we need all these tools. Ultimately, it'd be great to have a vaccine that really works. Don't think we're going to get there, probably not even in my lifetime, but hopefully. But until we get that, we need to make sure that we're spraying houses, 
with insecticides, providing people with bed nets and making sure that they actually use them, uh, getting effective treatments out there. There are effective malaria treatments and diagnosing them. But ultimately, I come back to the point that I made before. Ultimately, countries need to start getting wealthy. It's the United States wealth that allows people to afford houses with proper windows and glass, with air conditioning in their offices, at home and in their cars, that creates a physical barrier between people and mosquitoes. And that's one of the reasons that malaria has never really made a comeback here and is unlikely to. But it's essentially this country's wealth. And you, the interesting thing is you see this in other places too. Malaria was eradicated from Taiwan, from Mauritius, and remains gone in those cases, again, with because of DDT spraying. But Taiwan and Mauritius became so wealthy so quickly because of economic freedom, this is my personal opinion, that uh, it, it, it remains eradicated. Other islands like, you know, like Haiti, where you could eradicate it, diseases like malaria remain a problem there because of poverty. You know, we need to encourage countries to adopt free markets and open economies. Uh, and that ultimately will lift people out of poverty. Uh, and malaria is a disease of poverty. And, and that's ultimately the answer. You've been listening to Rise and Fall, How Ideas Move the World. This podcast was produced by me, Amanda Maxim, and the Ayn Rand Institute. Music was by Poddington Bear. What did you think? Do you think we should start using DDT again? What do you think about the genetically engineered mosquitoes? Do you have a question for me or one of my guests? Or do you just want to call and say how awesome the episode was? Call and leave a message on our fall line at 888-673-5553. You might hear yourself on the air. If you enjoy this podcast and you want to hear more episodes, do me a favor. Tell one person that you respect or that respects you about the podcast. Also, jump on iTunes and leave us a review. Thank you. And open up the podcast app on your phone and hit subscribe. Maybe borrow your friend's phone and do the same for them. Thanks.